At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to greatlakeskidsapparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash checkthelocks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. And I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. As always, Olivia, before we begin, it's great to see you. How are you? How has your week been? My week's been great. Um, Not much going on, just running and running some more. How are you? Doing good. We are getting ready for a kid's birthday party. So we've been doing a lot of planning and running around and a lot of Disney plates and cups and napkins and tablecloths and stuff like that in my life over the last about week or so. So, you know, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Millie's going to be four. She is. She's getting big. She's so cute. So, by the way, I have to take a moment to congratulate you before we go any further. On what? Well, I heard that somebody received the Tulane Medical Center Steward of the Month Award for July of 2022. Did my mother send that to you? I'm not allowed to reveal my sources. (laughs) She is such a nerd. 
But for the listeners at home, this award is given monthly to the Tulane School of Medicine clinician who exhibits professional excellence in medical stewardship. So on behalf of myself, our listeners, congratulations. And my mother. Again, I'm not allowed to name my sources. Well, thank you, John, and whoever your sources are. That's embarrassing. Well, guess what? I'm going to be short on time this week. I'm not cutting anything out. So. (laughs) (laughs) Well, who did you bring this week, John? So last week, you brought a story that, judging by people's response in the Facebook group, I know personally for me, it was quite unsettling, uh, but it seemed to hit home. So I wanted to bring something that I wasn't actually familiar with before researching it, something a little bit different, I think, than a lot of the cases that we've done before. So hopefully you're going to be into it. Hopefully the listeners like it. I don't know. I know it's late. It is 930 right now. We're just getting started. So I don't know. Should we just jump into it, cover what we got? Yeah, let's hear it. All right. So it is spring of 1989 and the rural counties of Ohio are filled with rolling hills and open pastures. Now, it's typically a quiet place where doors are seldom locked and violent crimes rarely take place. On April 1st, Donald Welling was out for his usual jog down the back roads of Tuscarawas County. As Welling was jogging, a vehicle pulled alongside him. A single shot was fired from a high-power rifle. The bullet passed through his arm and into his chest, leaving Welling dead on the side of the road. Police searched Welling's home and found no sign of any potential struggle. A local resident whose wife was having an affair with Welling was questioned, but it was determined to be a false lead. The rifle that was used to kill Donald Welling was never recovered. On November 10, 1990, another chilly Saturday morning, 21-year-old Jamie Paxton set out early to bow hunt. Leaving his bow in his vehicle, Paxton took a walk through the tall grass on State Route 9. While walking through the field alone and unarmed, Paxton failed to notice a red pickup truck pull up a short distance away. Quietly, the gunman stalked his victim, steadying him in his sights. Jamie Paxton was shot three times again with a high-powered rifle. The gunman returned to his truck and drove away. There were no witnesses. Okay, so this man or woman, they're literally like hunting humans. Yeah, it's pretty crazy that you would just roll up on someone, especially on a country back road. And just be like, hey, I've got you. And it's not even like he's using a handgun or a shotgun. Like he's using Mm. a high-powered hunting rifle, which is crazy. Yeah, that's insane. There had now been two killings in a 19-month period, and the community was growing concerned. Now, hunting accidents are not uncommon in this area of Ohio, but authorities knew that this was something different. Most accidental hunting deaths involve one wound, and Jamie Paxton had been shot three times. Additionally, at the time of Paxton's shooting... Gun season actually wasn't in yet, so it was only bow at that point. Because of this, all the evidence pointed to murder. Police investigated the area the victim was found for tire tracks and other potential evidence, and unfortunately, they found nothing. Paxton had no enemies. He was popular, and they could find no one with motive to harm him. Now, Jamie's mother, Jean Paxton, was rightfully distressed after her son's murder. She began writing letters to the killer and having them published in a local newspaper. Jean hoped that her letters, urging the killer to confess, may drive him to come forward. So I can't imagine being a mother or a father, someone who lost their child. My first thought would not be, let me write into a newspaper and try to make contact with the killer. Yeah, me either. I wonder if that was some way for her to like cope with the fact or make her think. I don't know. That's interesting. 
Yeah, I found it very interesting as well. And again, this is 1989, 1990. So I know things were different and famously, you know, there've been killers like the Zodiac who have written into newspapers and things like that. But this was 33 years ago. I wasn't born when this took place. I was four years old. I was cooking, but I wasn't born. Hanging out in the oven. (laughs) (laughs) Just a bun in the oven. On November 28th, just 18 days after Pacton's murder, 30-year-old Kevin Loring was on a hunting trip in Muskegon County, only 40 miles away from where Jamie Paxton was murdered. While his friends wrapped up their lunch, Loring decided to get a head start. As he walked across the field looking for potential game, Loring had no idea that he was in the sights of the gunman. He was killed by a single gunshot wound to the face. Now, it seemed that the killer was cautious. He was committing these crimes throughout several counties over hundreds of rural miles. And because of this, police in Muskegon County were not aware of the sniper's victims in other nearby locations. Loring's death was ruled a hunting accident at the time. Now, I know we've talked about this a lot before, but you know, back then it was all of these departments worked individually. It's not like it is today where everything's connected through the internet and it's easy to share information. So I can imagine you show up, somebody's been shot in the face in the middle of hunting season out in nature. I'm sure it's pretty logical to be like, oh, this must be a hunting accident. Yeah, you're right. Because I mean, we have talked about that a lot where they just don't keep up with what's happening in all the different counties. So I could see where they would write just one random murder off in the country as a hunting accident. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And At this time, Gene Paxton was still writing letters to Jamie's killer and having them published in the paper. She felt that if she could get one of her letters into the hands of the killer, she could get a response. And finally, she did. A letter arrived at Martin's Ferry Times Leader only a few days before the one-year anniversary of Jamie's death. The letter read, I am the murderer of Jamie Paxton. Jamie Paxton was a complete stranger to me. I never saw him before in my life, and he never said a word to me that Saturday. Paxson was killed because of an irresistible compulsion that has taken over my life. I knew when I left my house that day that someone would die by my hand. I just didn't know who or where. I'm an average-looking person with a family, a job, and a home just like yourself. Something in my head causes me to turn into a merciless killer with no conscience. The letter continued. I was very drunk, and a voice in my head said, do it. I stopped my car behind Jamie and got out. Jamie started walking very slowly down the hill towards the road. I raised my rifle to my shoulder and lined him up in the sights. I took at least five seconds to carefully aim. My first shot was off a bit and hit him in the right chest. He groaned and went down. I wanted to make sure he was finished, so I fired a second shot aimed halfway between his hip and shoulder while he was prone on the ground. I jerked the shot and hit him in the knee. He never moved again. Five minutes after I shot Paxton, I was drinking a beer and it blacked out all thoughts of what I had just done out of my mind. I thought no more of shooting Paxton than shooting a bottle at the dump. I know you hate my guts and rightfully so. I think about Jamie every hour of the day as I'm sure you do. Damn. I'm going to cuss on this one. That's... I don't even know what to say. I would be so shocked if I was Gene receiving this letter from the killer of my son. And just knowing that this guy was like a monster. I mean, one, he kind of feels remorseful. But at the same time, he's like, I could I could care less about at the time who Jamie was. It's also crazy to think about how callous he seems in this. Where mm-hmm. it's, I knew I was going to do this. I didn't know who. I didn't know where. But I knew it was going to happen. And it just happened to be your son. And he's giving these details about literally 
putting bullets into him and he's doing it in this way that just makes it feel like it was just another day. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like no big deal. Yep, I did that and then I went and had a beer, you know, which is incredibly dark. Yeah. That was really shocking to me. Police now knew a serial killer was operating in the area, but they would need more. If they could find the typewriter the killer used to write the letter or the weapon that he used, they may have a shot at catching him. While investigators continued to track down clues, the killer continued to hunt. It was now Saturday, March 14, 1992. Claude Hawkins had finished his midnight shift at a local glass company around sunrise. Hawkins loved fishing, so he headed out to one of his favorite spots on a local river near Wills Creek Dam. The gunman noticed Hawkins from the road and grabbed his rifle. He crept up from behind and fired, killing the victim where he stood. Hawkins had a wife and four children. Again, another outdoorsman was killed alone, but this time the killer struck on federal property. Because of this, the FBI was able to step in. Investigators from three counties, the FBI, and the Ohio Division of Wildlife formed a task force. Immediately, they were struck by the lack of evidence in the case. The killer had no contact with the victims. He didn't rob them. Their cars were untouched, and shell casings had been removed. This told the investigators that the killer was meticulous and evidence conscious, which was really surprising to me to think that this guy is just able to pull off on the side of the road, line these guys up in his sight, take him out, and he's not leaving a shred of evidence. No tire tracks, nothing. It, it literally is like he's just a ghost, you know? Yeah, I didn't even think about tire tracks. I was just thinking, okay, so he goes and picks up the shell casings. But, like, I mean, I don't know. I guess they are finding the bodies where he shot them. But I wouldn't think about all the other, like, footprints. That's one of my favorite things is the tire tracks, you know? So I wonder how he's doing that. Yeah, and I think part of it is that he's just pulling up on paved roads. So, like, this guy's fishing at a dam. You know what I mean? So there's a right. road that probably runs alongside it. And he's just like, there's a guy. He stops, gets out, fires off the road, and then just keeps going. You know, if you're yep. not driving in the grass or burning out anywhere. Mm -hmm. Now, after reviewing the case, the task force did eventually rule Kevin Loring's death as a homicide. And he was the hunter who was shot in the face. They originally ruled as a hunting accident. Yeah. Also, the fact that the killer had only struck on Saturdays suggested that he was employed. As the task force continued to try and put the pieces together, the killer struck again. On April 5th, 1992, 44-year-old Gary Bradley left his home in neighboring West Virginia to go pond fishing in Noble County. As he fished the pond, the killer again spotted him from the road and opened fire. Bradley would never return to his wife and three children again. Before you move on to another murder, April 5th, 1992 is a Saturday, and you had just mentioned that he only kills on Saturdays. So I was curious to see what day of the week that was, and it's indeed a Saturday. Yeah, it's almost like this guy is going about his week, and then like this is his way to unwind on the weekend, which is, yeah. again, like incredibly dark. It's his six-pack of beer, it seems like. With another murder, the task force was under immense pressure to stop the road sniper. It was at this point that the FBI then brought in the Behavioral Science Unit to attempt to build a profile of the killer. Now, we've talked about the Behavioral Science Unit before. If you watch Criminal Minds, it's the same kind of thing. They come in and based on the victimology, based on what they do know, they build a profile of who this killer could potentially be or some common traits that this killer may have. The unit was able to determine that the task force should be looking for a white male. 
He would be intelligent and an outdoorsman himself. He wouldn't look out of place if you saw him in the woods. And they also believe that the killer may be responding to something in his life that may be going wrong. It was also apparent that they were dealing with someone who had a sniper-like mentality. The killer didn't want confrontation, so he would commit these murders at a distance. This is also a common trait in arsonists. They'll actually set a fire in a vindictive situation rather than having a face-to-face confrontation, which I thought was really interesting. I wouldn't have thought to link these two kind of mentalities together. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't know that about arsonists. I just thought they were like people who like to play with fire. Are those pyromaniacs? Yeah. Yeah, pyromaniacs are people who are obsessed with fire. Arsonists are people who want to do harm but don't have to. Okay. Yeah, it's people who set fires to cause damage and things of that nature. The profile also suggested that the killer may have recently been involved in some nuisance type of offenses. This could be shooting out windows and tires of cars or cruelty to animals. The profile suggested that the violence was likely triggered by stress and fueled by alcohol. So when you had mentioned this is kind of like his six-pack of beer, they're definitely thinking that alcohol is playing a pretty big part in what's going on. This case is really interesting. Now, additionally, FBI forensic scientists studied the letter the killer sent to the local paper. The typewriter had a distinguishing typeface, and authorities knew, again, if they could find that typewriter, they could link the letter to the murders. On July 21st, 1992, two hunters were in a state park, again, in Muskegon County. As they made their way through a wooded area, one of the men noticed something horrifying. Nearby stood the figure of a man with a gun pointed directly at them. Terrified, the men called out to him, and the killer ran off to his red pickup truck. It happened too quickly for the men to get a license plate number or a good look at the man, but the hunters contacted the local authorities who informed the task force. And again, as I was researching and going through the story, just the thought of like, I'm out fishing. You know, I live in Tennessee, do some occasional fishing. There's some spots that we go to where we have to walk a mile off the road. So to just think that I'm walking through with a friend or something like that, and I look over and there's somebody pointing a rifle directly at me is an absolutely terrifying thought. Yeah, that's horrifying. And I just looked up July 21st, 1992, and it's a Tuesday. So a little off the pattern so far. Yeah, yeah. Now, throughout 1992, the task force worked diligently to find the killer. They investigated and cleared more than 100 suspects. It was now August, and the investigation had hit a dead end. With no leads, the task force decided to go public and ask the community for help. They held a press conference and released the profile built by the FBI. Immediately, tips started to come in. On August 26th, one phone call stood out. The man on the phone, Richard Fry, said the task force should know about a high school friend of his named Thomas Lee Dillon. Investigators now had a lead and someone willing to talk. Thomas Dillon was born in Canton, Stark County, northeastern Ohio, on July 9, 1950. His father passed away from Hodgkin's disease when he was just 15 months old. Dillon viewed his mother as a cold woman who never praised or punished him. In school, he was extremely intelligent, but a loner with few friends. He would spend time in the woods of Ohio alone. As a teenager, Dylan kept track of the animals that he had killed on a calendar in his room. He also kept a calendar of girls that he had slept with. And again, as I was going through the research, something in this brain is not clicking right to me. You know what I mean? If you're keeping a calendar, it's almost like keeping a log of conquest, right? Like I killed this animal. I slept with this woman. 
Yeah, it's it's odd. Something, like you said, it's not right in his head. Like, you don't keep a calendar. You might remember, oh, like, hey, I killed this big buck last July. But, like, you don't keep a journal of every person you sleep with and every animal you kill. Not even for, like, a normal hunter. Yeah, I know a good amount of people who hunt living where I live. And none of them are like, you want to see my kill calendar? I live with a family of hunters. We don't keep little calendars. Now, after high school, Dylan attended Kent State University and later Ohio State University. In 1978, he married Catherine Elsass, a nurse from Alliance, Ohio. He continued to keep track of his animal killings, boasting his calendar had reached 500 kills. He worked as a draftsman for the Municipal Water Department for the city of Canton for 22 years. Dylan was also knowledgeable about police procedures. In 1980, he had attended the Ohio Peace Officers Training in Stark County. He did well in the class and graduated with an expert ranking markmanship. A task force member arranged to meet with Richard Fry. Fry shared that he and Dylan used to drive around rural Ohio roads shooting at road signs and small animals. But Fry eventually began to find Dylan too eccentric and extreme. He said that Dylan began to take interest in serial killers like Ted Bundy, and had taken to killing family pets and cattle. According to Fry, Dylan would also set random fires. And I thought this was very interesting when we started talking about the FBI profile a little ways back, potentially hurting animals, potentially starting fires, that same kind of mentality to have this friend being like, yeah, this is what he's doing. Yeah, this is so spot on. Like, I want to know what a FBI profile would be like, I don't know, of me. I don't know how they would figure that out, but that would be cool to know. She probably wears flannel shirts and has way too many cats. <laughs> <laughs> no, they do the same to me. They'd be like, well, he's probably slightly overweight and really enjoys a Big Mac. He's just that kind he of guy. He goes to Jersey Mike's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> he's at Jersey Mike's seven days a week. It's ridiculous. Like, I don't know what we'd have to do to get one or if they could just make one, you know, like of you. Yeah. I, I don't know because we're not committing crimes or anything like that. Like right. if they... Because from what I understand, they're looking at the crimes and saying, like, this kind of oh, person this is, would yeah, yeah, do yeah. this. But I'm sure that they would be very good at, like, reading your body language, maybe sitting down with you for an interview and then being like, this is what I know about you just from having that conversation. I think that would be very interesting. So if you had to make a profile about me right now sitting down recording the podcast, what would it be? It's a good question. If I had to make a profile on you. Just right now. I would say that you care about your job, so you work maybe harder than you should. You allow yourself to get a little burned out, and because of that, you look for other ways to relieve that stress, like doing a true crime podcast or running like a crazy person, training for a marathon. That would be my, just in like knowing you, that's what mm -hmm. I would say. But again, I don't know if that's an actual profile or if that's just like we've texted each other a bunch. You know what I mean? <laughs> What about me? What would your profile of me be? So I would say that you are a ex-punk rocker who has turned into this lovely husband, family man, and like a good true crime podcaster. Like you're a good dude, John. Thank you. I appreciate that. I try to be a good dude. Like I like you now, and I think I would have liked you like punk rocker too. Yeah, when I have my blue hair, funny story about having blue hair. If you have to swim in phys ed, it turns toilet bowl blue. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it was a good look. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and thankfully, there's no pictures of it. Not a one? Nope. No, my mom was like, I don't want this documented. 
She was also very happy because I did it the night before my grandma was supposed to come into town to visit. And she was like, oh, you had to pick today to be like, I'm just going to have blue hair. Blue hair. I just wouldn't take you to be a blue haired guy. Yeah. I. The like band music DJ radio host I can see. Yeah. That's that's what makes you a great podcaster. But I didn't see you with blue hair. Not to get too deep, but like there's just something in my personality where like I've always liked to be like listen to my songs or I'm going to do this podcast or, you know, I want to be on the radio because I want people to hear me talk. And it's probably like some deep seated insecurity thing where I'm like, I just want people to like me. But welcome to the podcast. I love it. John's one of my dearest friends now. I agree. I would say the same. Fry shared that he got married and throughout most of the 1980s, he was distant from Dylan. But in 1989, he actually bumped into Thomas Dylan at a gun show in Cleveland, Ohio. At that point, Dylan invited Fry to ride along with him like the old days, and the pair again found themselves riding around the back roads of Ohio, drinking beer and shooting at road signs. Then, a strange question. Dylan turned to Fry and asked if he thought Dylan could ever kill anyone. Dylan then began discussing how to get away with killing people randomly. He even discussed killing in different counties to make it harder for police to track. Fry shared that when he read the press release, he immediately thought of Thomas Dillon. I mean, who else would Fry think about? He's basically telling him everything that he's done, how to do it. Yeah, it's being braggadocious. Yeah, there couldn't be anybody else in Ohio doing this when you have like the proof. The story has been told to you. Yeah, it's also hubris. You know what I mean? It's like, if this is the guy who's doing it, it is a sense of... I am so good at this that I can ask these questions. I can have these kind of conversations and I'm so good at what I'm doing and I'm so much smarter than everybody else that even having these kind of conversations, this will never come back on me. Cause they'll never find the evidence. Right. Fry provided a description of Dylan as well as the type of vehicle that he drove a red pickup truck. With this new information, the task force decided that Dylan fit the FBI's profile and needed to be investigated. First, they visited Dylan's job to obtain a copy of his work schedule. They would use the work schedule to compare Dylan's days off to the dates the killings took place. Now, Dylan was off on weekends. He had a Monday through Friday 9 to 5 job, and several of the murders had taken place on Saturdays. However, this wasn't enough to name Dylan as their suspect. But... He had requested two weekdays off. July 21st, 1992, the day the two hunters spotted a man pointing a rifle at them, and November 28th, 1990, the day that Kevin Loring was killed. Because of this, the decision was made to start surveillance on Thomas Dillon. In October of 1992, the task force would begin following Dillon as he drove the back roads of Ohio. On October 10th, while tailing the suspect, a member of the task force briefly lost track of Dillon, While trying to locate him, the two came face-to-face on the road. The agent waved, and Dylan waved back, but the agent was secretly afraid. In the car, he had all of his tactical gear, his radio, and he knew that if Dylan made him or realized that he was being followed, their cover would be blown. So to prevent this, the task force temporarily stopped their surveillance. Now, a few days later, Larry Orler was hunting in Tuscaleras County when he heard a vehicle pull up on the road. He looked through the trees to see a stocky white male pointing a rifle at him. The gunman fired, and Orler threw himself to the ground. Thinking that he had hit Orler, the gunman sped off. Orler's description of the shooter matched Dylan, but he was unable to make a positive ID. 
At this point, the task force knew that Thomas Dillon was their most likely suspect and the decision to increase surveillance was made. During October and November of 1992, the FBI coordinated a large air and ground surveillance tactic. During that time, Dillon was observed shooting road signs and breaking windows with rocks. This is exactly the type of behavior that was outlined in the FBI's profile. Investigators could arrest him for the petty crimes, but if they did, they may never know if Dillon was in fact the road sniper. Now, trailing a suspect on an open country back road is not the easiest thing to do. If Dillon attempted another shooting and the agents weren't in the right spot, they could have another murder on their hands. If they stayed too close, Dillon may become suspicious and go into hiding. Because of this, investigators would follow at a good distance while air surveillance would follow and provide radio updates. One day, while trailing Dillon, he passed a female jogger running down the road. Fearful that he may attack the unsuspecting runner, the aerial surveillance radioed to the car on the ground to speed up. Dillon passed the jogger, but to the surprise of the surveillance team, he then began to make a series of right turns that indicated he was going back for the jogger. Investigators were panicked, thinking Dillon was going to get her. He stopped his truck, pulled out his gun, and started to look through the scope. Luckily, he began firing at a stop sign in the road. Fortunately for the jogger, she had turned off and may have just escaped being a victim. Okay, so that that's insane, number one. Being a woman jogger, that makes me nervous just because that just happened in Tennessee. But there's no way that he knew that he was being tailed. Like, he's not that smart. And so I think he honestly was going back to shoot her and then had to take that urge out and shot at the stop sign because he missed her because she was gone. Yeah, and that's exactly what investigators thought, too, was that he's like, I'm going to loop around. It's a perfect opportunity. And luckily for her, she had kind of veered off in a different direction. And when he got there, he was just like, well, I got to shoot at something. You know, that's kind of what I do. Yeah. Luckily for her, she had just gotten out of sight. Now, the constant surveillance of Dylan began to put stress on the investigators. They began to look at different possible tactics. In the letter written to the paper, the killer confessed to feeling remorse over Jamie Pacton's murder. Investigators decided to revisit surveillance footage taken at Pacton's grave. Many people had come to pay respects on the one-year anniversary of his death, but one visitor stuck out, Thomas Dillon. Investigators immediately noticed that this was the man they had been following. They knew Dillon was the sniper, but they would need solid evidence. And I was also imagining being an investigator in this case, and you're trailing this guy, and you know in your gut that this is the guy who's doing it, and there's a letter that comes in that says, I think about this victim every hour of every day. And then you go back to video footage of that victim's grave and this guy's just showing up. It's like everything is there. This is the guy, but how do I seal the deal? How do I finally get him off the street and potentially save these lives, you know? Yeah, I think at this point, first I'm mind blown that the fact that he was on the surveillance footage going to the gravesite, but it's almost like they're going to have to catch him in the act of actually murdering someone. And that's the only way they're going to be able to pin him. Because it's like, you're right, all the evidence is there. We know it's him, but we don't know how to pin him. Yeah, and it's all circumstantial. You know what I mean? You've got enough there to be like, my gut is telling me that this is the guy, but that gut feeling the circumstantial evidence, it just isn't enough. Like you have to have something that's like, I can say definitively that I know that this is you. You have to have at least one solid piece of evidence. Now on November 11th, 1992, the second anniversary of Jamie Pacton's death, investigators tailed Dylan to the Times Meter building. 
Dylan bought a copy of the paper from the day before filled with details on Jamie Pacton's memorial service. It had now been three years since the first killings occurred and the community was still on edge. Investigators learned that Dylan had been in trouble before for owning a silencer and was forbidden to own firearms. The task force was simply running out of options, and since they had clearly witnessed him violating the no firearms ruling, they decided to move in before he could kill again. Now, their plan was to arrest him for the weapons violation, but also to imply that they had evidence to prove that he was in fact the road sniper. Hopefully, Dylan would confess. Investigators knew that on his frequent drives, Dylan would stop at a local dairy mart. Across the street from that dairy mart was an office building. The FBI utilized the basement of that building and lined the walls with surveillance photographs, maps of the area that the murders took place, and newspaper articles. Their hope was to overwhelm Dylan and get him to confess. On November 27, 1992, Dylan was approached by agents outside of the Dairy Mart. They asked him to come to the office building voluntarily to answer some questions. When Dylan refused, ATF agents were signaled to swoop in and place Dylan under arrest. Now, at this point, investigators felt defeated because they didn't get to interview Dylan like they had hoped. But at the time of his arrest, other members of the task force were executing a search warrant on Dylan's home. To their dismay, the search turned up nothing. At this point, Thomas Dylan had requested to speak to a lawyer, and investigators knew that there wasn't much more that they could do. So again, just thinking about like how beat down I would have to feel as one of these investigators. Like I've got this idea, I'm gonna ask him to come answer some questions. I've got the map and the pins and the red string and the photographs. <laughs> it just seems like nothing is going their way, you know? Mm-hmm. As the sense of defeat began to settle in, there was a surprise. Dylan actually wanted to talk. Agents confronted Dylan with piece after piece of evidence they had captured over the course of their surveillance. Dylan seemed fascinated, but still refused to talk. Meanwhile, his attorney was arguing that he should be spared jail time on the weapons charges. If investigators couldn't find something fast, Thomas Dillon would walk. The task force decided to hold yet another press conference. They asked the public to come forward if they had bought or sold any firearms from Dillon. Meanwhile, another member of the task force was following up on a separate lead. A witness had come forward and provided a tip, giving the location of where they had seen Dylan firing his rifle a few years prior. Investigators hoped that they may be able to finally find some ballistics evidence. Now, Olivia, I'm sure you know this because we've talked about degrading evidence before on the show, but the chances of finding a shell that had been fired two years prior was slim, but it was all the investigators had, right? And I can imagine being an investigator in that moment. It's a long shot, but like sometimes a long shot pays off. If I don't look at this, I might be kicking myself down the line, you know? Right. Yep. The task force member combed the grassy field area inch by inch by hand and with a metal detector. To his surprise, two rifle shell casings were found. Ballistic tests were done and it was a match. These casings came from the same weapon that killed Gary Bradley and Claude Hawkins. This was the physical link that investigators had been praying for. Additionally, the press conference was about to pay off. A man named Al Cope called to inform investigators that he had bought a firearm from someone matching Dylan's description at a gun show the previous spring. The date of the sale was April 5th, the same day that Gary Bradley was murdered. Now they have a gun and the same gun possibly with the casings they have. Yeah. And so it's like when it rains, it pours. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I say we can say good things come in three instead of bad things come in three. Something good's going to come from this one. 
And again, I can just imagine being an investigator and just wanting something for so long, so long, so long. And now like two solid pieces have fallen in my lap, you know? Yeah. The rifle was sent to the FBI's lab in Washington for ballistics testing. Fragments of bullets were taken from the bodies of Claude Hawkins and Gary Bradley. The rifle was test fired and those rounds were compared to the fragments taken from the body. Again, it was a match. Thomas Dillon had used this rifle to kill Gary Bradley and Claude Hawkins and then sold it at a gun show to Al Cope. And not only did he sell it, he sold it the day that he killed Gary Bradley. So he murdered this man and then was like, I'm going to take this gun and just go sell it at a gun show same day. I mean, this is how the guy was arrogant about it because he knew he wasn't going to get caught. Like, what are the chances that this Al Cope would come through with all these press conferences and be like, hey, like, I bought a gun from this person. And then the chances of them actually finding bullet fragments from those exact same murders are crazy. Yeah, and not that Dylan wasn't smart. You know, like, if you're going to commit crimes, I hate to say this, but, like, this is a smart approach to take if you're somebody who's trying to do this kind of thing. But, again, you're never as smart as you think you are. And that seems to be a common theme in a lot of the cases that we've done where these people just think that they are the smartest person in the room, in the county, in the state. But eventually you're going to get caught. Right. Yeah. He's not the smartest one. And the truth always comes out. The truth shall set you free. Or put you in prison. Or put you in, or the complete opposite. <laughs> Enslave you in, in shackles. Now, this was the last bit of evidence that investigators needed. And they again visited Dylan in jail. They shared that he and his truck fit the description of the sniper provided by witnesses. He had been out of work on the days that the murders took place. He had a history of violence and gunplay. And now they could prove in court that a gun Dylan owned had been used to kill two of the victims. But investigators wanted closure for the families of all five victims. Dylan was offered a deal and reminded that he was facing the electric chair if found guilty in the state of Ohio. Because of this, Dylan began to negotiate. He met with prosecutors in June of 1993, and he agreed to confess to each of the five murders if the death penalty was taken off the table. On July 12, 1993, Thomas Dillon pled guilty in Nobles County Court. With the families in attendance, including Gene Paxson, Dillon admitted to each murder. He then left the courtroom with a smile on his face. Following his sentencing, Dillon would consistently call a local reporter to try and talk about his crimes. He would brag and boast about the murders, except for one. He did not want to talk about Jamie Paxton. In fact, Dylan shared with investigators that, for the most part, he didn't feel remorse for what he had done, but Jamie Paxton was different. He told investigators he felt bad because he didn't realize how young Paxton was. That's crazy, but I'm glad at least like he feels remorse for one victim, you know? Yeah, and it seems like he was targeting, especially when you look at the age of the other men, that he was targeting a certain age range. And so I don't know if this is like some kind of like I cut this kid's life short before he had an opportunity to live it. But then you're also like, well, if he had been six years older, would you have felt bad? Right. Yeah. Like you should feel bad for all of them. Right. You're still insane. You know, now Gene Paxson had been looking forward to facing Dylan in court, but his guilty plea prevented that. Going out on a limb, she asked the local authorities if it would be possible to arrange a phone call with Dylan. And surprisingly, they agreed. One night, Paxton's phone rang. Dylan shared that it had hurt his feelings when Gene had called him a coward in an interview after his court appearance. 
But Paxson remained strong and did not waver. After three years, she was able to share with Dylan the damage that he had done, and she finally felt relieved. She was free of Thomas Lee Dillon and had defeated him with her words. Years later, the Paxton bill was passed. Dillon's wife was trying to sell his story for profit, and the Paxton bill prevents killers from profiting from their crimes in the state of Ohio. Thomas Lee Dillon died in October 2011 at the age of 61 years old. And that's this week's story. How are you feeling about it, Olivia? That was an awesome story. I'm just like, I feel like I've just read along this whole time. It was really cool. And I'm glad I like when our cases end and like new legislatures passed or something. And so like now they have the Paxson bill. And I think that that's valid. Like killers shouldn't be able to profit off of their crimes. I agree 100%. And I have to tell you, I was really surprised that I didn't know about this case beforehand. Because this seems like the kind of case, if you remember like the DC sniper who was, you know, firing out of his car randomly at people at gas stations or in other vehicles, like that was national news. And maybe this was national news at the time. And you and I, I mean, for the majority of this, you weren't around. I was just a bun. Yeah. Right. And I was very young. But you would think that a story like this would be one that kind of resonates throughout culture the way that some of these other killers have. So I was very surprised to be like, I had no idea that this ever took place. Yeah, this was a really good case. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I am very curious to ask you, though, because the act of these murders was so random. Where does this fall on your deadbolt test? John, this week I'm putting Dylan on like a number eight. I think it was very scary. It was scary and creepy in a sense that he got away with so many of them and just had this plan of like, I drive by, it's like you're saying, they're driving on the dam. There's no evidence. There's no car tracks. There's no, you know, he thought he had all the, you know, the bullet casings, but like there was just no true evidence. And it took a while for detectives to really figure it out. Like they knew it was him, but they didn't have a way to pinpoint him. And I think that that is what makes it so high for me because he was able to like manipulate them in a way that's like, I'm doing it, but y'all can't pin me for it. Yeah. And I've got to agree with you. I am not a hunter. I'm not someone who spends like an enormous amount of time in the outdoors. I do like fishing occasionally and stuff like that. But even though I'm not like the quote typical victim, as we've talked about before, for me, it's the randomness, right? Mm -hmm. Because maybe I'm just in my front yard, you know, and this guy decides to park down the street just out of my sight, but he can see me. I think it ties very much into the Daniel LaPlante type of case where a home invasion could just be so random you're in it before you have time to even realize what's happening. So I'm I'm right there with you. I'm going to put this at Nate. Just the idea that this could randomly happen to you just chills me to the bone a little bit, you know? I was really fascinated by this story. It just kept me on my toes the whole time, I felt like. Well, you know, I'm always glad to bring something that, number one, you're not familiar with, and number two, as we go through it, I like being able to keep you engaged. And if you're liking it, that means I'm hoping that the listeners are going to like it just as much. So, Olivia... You, myself, we're both putting this in Nate, but we want to know where does the road sniper Thomas Lee Dillon fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Reach out to us on Twitter at Check the Locks. And again, if you are not in our Facebook group, join that group. It's the best place on the internet. I say it week after week. I think I mean it more each week we do one of these episodes. I know because everybody just gets better and better in there. I know. And a big shout out to our friend Aaron. She broke her wing. It's recovering right now. 
but she let us know that we are lucky enough to get to hang out with her through the podcast while she's feeling better. So we really do hope that you get to feeling better soon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for letting us be part of your journey of recovery. And Olivia, after this kind of dense case, I think I need to review. I don't know about you, but how are you feeling? Yes, I'm ready for a good, happy thoughts. Awesome. What do you got for us this week? So this week's five-star review comes from CLR1994, exclamation, dollar sign, exclamation. I'm going to need our reviewers to give me easier names to say. Um, But this five-star review says, so glad I stumbled across this new true crime podcast. I've listened to every episode since I found y'all last week, and I can't wait for more. I love the dynamic, the stories, everything. One of the best up-and-coming true crime podcasts. So thank you, CLR, 1994, exclamation, dollar sign, exclamation. Yes, CLR, 1994, exclamation, dollar sign, exclamation. Thank you so much for taking the time to leave us a five-star review. I know we talk about this every week, but these reviews mean so much to us because, you know, somebody had just put in the Facebook group that they found us. We were suggested on Dateline, and it's because of these reviews. So if you take the time to rate and review us, that's going to put us in suggestions with other shows and things like that. And and again, we've talked about this a million times, but our goal is to grow our community, to bring as many listeners into this family as we can. And so every review helps with that. So thank you so much. CLR 1994 exclamation dollar sign exclamation. We would love to send you some swag. Please feel free to reach out to us again. You can find us on the socials, Instagram, check the locks pod, Twitter, check the locks. If you're in our Facebook group, holler at us, let us know. If you are not a social person, no worries. Head over to checkthelockspod.com. Click the email button. Send us that information. We would love to get it out to you. So all I have to say is I'm letting you read the names of the reviewers next time because you say it like a rap song and I say it like CLR 1994 exclamation dollar sign exclamation. I can't help it. I just like to put some emphasis on the punctuation. I got to kind of spit it out a little bit there. We also need to remember to ask the listeners to leave us a voicemail. That's right. This has been two weeks without a voicemail. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your voices. We want to hear what you thought about the last couple of episodes. What are you liking? What could we do better? What case shocked you? What case were you like, nah, I slept like a baby. We want to hear. So please, again, check the lockspod.com. Click the microphone, leave us a voicemail. We would absolutely love to play it. And Olivia needs those messages to feel validated. I know I'm starting to feel sad. Don't let my co-host feel sad. Leave us a voicemail. So that is it for this week's episode. And we did want to make sure that we're letting you know not to kind of leave you on a cliffhanger or spoiler, but next week we are going to be announcing some pretty cool information. So please make sure you're tuning into next Monday's episode. Also, don't forget to tune into Wednesday's True Crime for the Short on Time. This will be episode number two coming out this Wednesday. So make sure you're checking that out. Again, leave us a voicemail. Let us know what you think about it. Are you liking them? We want to hear from you. Thank you for hanging out with us. Join us again next week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. We'll see you next week.